You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 277, The Battle of Cowpens. We last left the war in the South back in episode 274, when General Nathaniel Greene took command of the Southern Army at the end of 1780. Greene promptly divided his army. He moved his forces southeast of Charlotte, North Carolina, across the South Carolina border into Sherraw. He sent the other part of his army, under General Daniel Morgan, to the southwest, also into South Carolina. The main British army, under General Charles Cornwallis, sat in between these two forces at Winsboro, South Carolina. Cornwallis had been forced out of North Carolina following the loss of the Loyalist Militia Army at Kings Mountain. Much of the British army also fell ill with malaria, forcing them to take several months to recuperate. Cornwallis was awaiting the arrival of General Alexander Leslie with an army of regulars to reinforce his own. Leslie had been deployed to the Chesapeake Bay region of Virginia, but Cornwallis requested that he bring his troops by ship to Charleston, then support his efforts to make another offensive into North Carolina. Leslie's army arrived in Charleston in December, but spent weeks trying to make its way inland to link up with Cornwallis at Winsboro. Heavy rains made travel slow and difficult, especially crossing the many rivers and streams throughout South Carolina. By remaining inland, Cornwallis could not get supplies from British ships easily. He complained throughout the winter about his inability to get sufficient food and supplies for his army, either shipped in or from the locals. It would have been easier if he pulled his army back to Charleston for the winter, but that would have meant either ceding most of South Carolina back to the rebel partisans or leaving his outposts at Camden and Fort 96 vulnerable to attack. Instead, Cornwallis remained at Winsboro throughout the winter, keeping close tabs on the Continental armies now encamped to his east and to his west. The garrison at Camden, under Lord Ralden, was about a day's march to his east. Fort 96 sat about two days' march to Cornwallis's west, and that fort was under the command of Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger. On New Year's Day, 1781, Cornwallis received intelligence that General Morgan was leading an army of 3,000 rebels against the outpost at Fort 96. Two days earlier, Morgan's cavalry, under command of Colonel William Washington, had attacked and decimated a large Loyalist force near the fort. Cornwallis now feared that Fort 96 could fall, unless he sent a relief force. Cornwallis had his main focus on destroying Greene's army and moving north into North Carolina, but he couldn't leave Morgan's army to do mischief in the western part of South Carolina. He had to snuff out that threat first. To do that, he turned to his ever-reliable Colonel Bannister Tarleton. 
By July 2nd, Tarleton was already on the move. He had with him his own British Legion, which consisted of about 250 cavalry and 200 infantry. He also took two companies of British regulars, an additional troop of mounted light dragoons, an artillery battery with two field cannon, some assorted loyalist companies and guides. In total, Tarleton had nearly 1,200 men under his command. Cornwallis and Tarleton both suspected that the British intelligence estimates of Morgan commanding an army of over 3,000 was exaggerated, and they were correct. Now, there is some dispute over how many men Morgan had with him. Morgan later reported that he commanded about 800 men. Most historians believe this is a low number. Some estimates think Morgan's account was pretty close, putting the numbers at between 800 and 1,000 men. Other estimates put the American army at 1,900. Part of the problem with determining exact numbers was that various local militia groups kept coming and going. The core of Morgan's force consisted of about 300 Continentals from Delaware, Maryland, to Virginia, as well as a little less than 100 Continental Dragoons under Colonel William Washington. There were probably a few hundred more Virginia militia, many of whom were former Continental soldiers. So while these men were serving as militia at the moment, they were experienced combat veterans. Supplementing these core forces were hundreds of North Carolina and South Carolina militia, along with a few dozen Georgia militia. Many of the militia served under Colonel Andrew Pickens, who was a proven combat officer. Many of these men had fought under General Thomas Sumter, who was still away from active duty, recovering from battlefield injuries. Sumter was also peeved at Green because Green had given command of the Western Army to Morgan rather than Sumter, and Sumter understandably remained out of the field at this point given his injuries, but he was also still issuing orders to the militia, which made it difficult for Morgan to keep his army supplied. So this tension between the Continentals and the militia remained an ongoing problem. The total militia numbers who joined Morgan, as I said, are very soft and subject to dispute by experts who have examined this question much more thoroughly than I can. The estimates of Carolina militia, as I say, range from a few hundred to more than a thousand. Now, even if the higher estimates are correct, both the British and American military leaders gave the edge to the British under Tarleton. The conventional wisdom was that militia would not stand and fight in a pitched battle. They tended to run when faced with a bayonet charge, and when they ran, they abandoned the field. This is what happened at Camden a few months earlier. So in terms of reliable combat soldiers, it seemed as if the British had the advantage. Tarleton set out in pursuit of Morgan almost immediately after receiving Cornwallis's orders on January 2nd. At the time, he had only about half of his force with him. He wrote to Cornwallis on January 4th, telling his commander that he didn't think the Americans were going to attack Fort 96, but that he did have an opportunity to take out the threat of Morgan's force. Tarleton requested the two regiments of regulars, which Cornwallis provided. He also requested a company of Hessian Jaegers, which Cornwallis did not provide. Now, Morgan, in fact, was moving north, back toward the North Carolina border. He had been warned to avoid a major battle with the British, and agreed that it probably would not go well for him if he did have to fight. Travel along this frontier country was slow going for both armies, and this of course was made worse by the torrential rains that made river crossings almost impossible. 
Morgan tried to keep at least one river between his army and Tarleton's. Pickens's South Carolina militia guarded all the fords along the Pacalot River. On the night of January 15th, Tarleton was determined to cross and attack the rebels before they could retreat back into North Carolina. And he moved up the river from ford to ford, followed by the militia on the opposite bank, prepared to contest any river crossing. Finally, a frustrated Tarleton made camp for the night. The militia kept an eye on his camp from across the river, but they didn't watch closely enough. While Tarleton's men appeared to settle in for the night, the bulk of his force rode back six miles downstream and crossed the river at an unguarded ford. Tarleton immediately sent out scouts to locate Morgan's camp, and they found that the enemy was only about six miles away. Tarleton's soldiers reached the American camp shortly after dawn on the 16th. They found the camp empty. Morgan had received warning a few hours earlier and managed to get his army on the march before the enemy arrived. He did leave in such a hurry, though, that British found campfires with breakfast still cooking, and the British soldiers ate a breakfast prepared by their now-departed hosts. Morgan hoped to cross the Broad River before Tarleton could catch him. But he had to travel on back trails, and that made his movement slow. By the time he reached the river, it was dark, and attempting a night crossing was too dangerous. If he tried to cross in the morning, Tarleton would likely attack while the army was still trying to cross the river, and that would be devastating. So as much as he wanted to avoid a battle, Morgan decided that battle was his best option. By evening, the army had reached the cowpens. This was an open field where cowboys herded cattle before driving them to the coast for sale. It was a well-known gathering point in the backcountry. It's where the Overmountain men had gathered and assembled before marching to King's Mountain a few months earlier. Morgan set up camp there for the night and has allowed his men to rest and prepared for battle the following morning. Looking at the situation as it stood, the British under Tarleton had several advantages. Although Morgan probably had more men, as I said, most of them were militia, Tarleton's legion had a strong reputation for tearing apart militia with bold strikes and brutal tactics. Of even greater concern, the position that Morgan chose had the broad river behind his troops. If his men broke and run, they would have nowhere to retreat. The British would cut them down and turn the battle into a massacre. Morgan had also only been in command for a few months. The troops under him were not the trusty riflemen that he had commanded earlier in the war, so he had real questions. Would these men stand and fight as needed? Conventional wisdom at the time said that you put your best troops in the front and hoped that the militia would be inspired by their stand against an assault and that the militia would stick with them and rally around them. Morgan, however, decided to try something different. He placed his Continental troops in the back. The Continental line came under the direct command of Colonel John Eager Howard. Morgan next planned to deploy about 300 militia from Georgia and the Carolinas, about 150 yards in front of the Continentals. These were men who had been acting as scouts and skirmishers during the march. Some of these were still returning to camp late into the night, so they weren't entirely there. He didn't know how many he was going to have in the field the following morning. This militia line fell under the command of Colonel Andrew Pickens. Now, one serious danger for militia was a flanking attack, something Tarleton employed frequently. 
To protect against this, Morgan deployed about 100 Virginia riflemen on the militia's right flank, and in front of the militia, Morgan deployed another 120 riflemen from Georgia and North Carolina to act as skirmishers. Colonel Washington's Continental Cavalry would be held in reserve behind the Continental Line, ready to charge into any weak points that developed. Morgan had been in enough fights that he did not expect the militia to stand and fight. So instead, he asked them that they fire two or three shots at close range before retreating. After that, the men would pull back to the left flank of the Continental Line and reform as reserve corps once the Continentals engaged. After informing his officers of the plan, Morgan spent the rest of the night walking among the soldiers in camp, joking with them, talking about their homes and girlfriends, and according to at least one account, Morgan lifted his shirt and showed some men the scars from when he was given 500 lashes for striking a superior officer during the French and Indian War. Morgan liked to tell the story that he counted only 499 lashes and thought that he still was owed one more. But what he was really doing when he talked to the men was making clear what he expected of them. Just give me three shots, then you can retreat. Almost two hours before dawn, Scouts informed Morgan that Tarleton was riding hard and on his way. With that, Morgan took his position and prepared for battle. As usual, Tarleton had ridden his men hard and fast and without much sleep. Just before dawn on the morning of January 17th, the head of the British column came into the sights of the front of the American lines. The Carolina and Georgia riflemen in the front line began trying to pick off British officers as they struggled to form their lines. Tarleton ordered 50 of his mounted legionnaires to charge these American lines and disperse the riflemen. The horsemen charged the Americans, but took significant casualties before they turned and retreated. Next, Tarleton formed a line of infantry into a line of battle to advance against these riflemen. Because of the harassing fire, Tarleton really had no time to get a good sense of the field or the enemy's full deployment. The British regulars advanced to a point about 300 yards from the enemy, with Tarleton's provincial infantry providing support to them. Tarleton then ordered the line forward, even before some of the field officers had all of their men in position. Tarleton also deployed his two small field cannons to fire grape shot at the enemy lines. As planned, the front line of the Americans got off several shots and then began to retreat back to the line of militia commanded by Pickens and prepared for the larger British assault. The American officers struggled to prevent their men from firing until the British were close enough for a shot that could actually do some damage. Eventually, the Americans fired a staggered volley and the British returned fire. The American lines, which still included many riflemen, did considerable damage to the British line, while the British muskets seemed to do little harm. Some experts attribute this fact to the fact that the regulars were a relatively new regiment and were not very experienced in firing from a range. As the British line charged forward with bayonets, the American militia began to retreat. Tarleton ordered his mounted troops to run down the Americans. Seeing this coming, Morgan ordered Colonel Washington to charge into the fray and disrupt the British horsemen. As the mounted troops engaged in fierce hand-to-hand combat, Tarleton ordered his infantry forward, now against the main continental line. Now, despite taking some losses, Tarleton at this point felt pretty optimistic. It was only about 15 minutes into the battle, 
and he had dispersed the American skirmishers and its first line of soldiers. His men were now moving to engage with what he thought was the reserve force. Tarleton rode back to order his own reserve force of about 250 Highlanders into the fight along the left flank where they could enter the battle. At the same time, Morgan had ridden back to rally the retreating militia to hold the flank of the Continental Line, as the British focused on the relatively small Continental Line that continued to hold. Then, as often happens in battle, confusion took hold. Colonel Howard saw the British Highlanders advancing on his right and ordered his right flank to turn and face their attack. The commanding officer on the right flank misunderstood the command and thought Howard was ordering him to fall back. So he ordered his men to about face and march off the field. The British saw this and thought the American line was crumbling. The British infantry charged the lines but ran into a solid defense and heavy hand-to-hand fighting. By this time, Morgan had reached the retreating right flank and got them to turn around again and face the enemy. When the charging British were only a few yards from their lines, the Americans fired a devastating volley, followed by Howard's command to the Continentals to charge bayonets. At that point, the British line did something that almost never happened. The soldiers dropped their guns and surrendered. Not ready to stop, Howard then ordered a portion of his Continentals to charge the British field cannon and capture them. Tarleton ordered his British Legion reserves to enter the battle and support the Highlanders. But the men didn't move. As Tarleton rode across the field to see about the delay, the Americans shot out his horse from under him. A British doctor gave Tarleton his own horse before surrendering to the Americans so that he could treat the wounded. Finally, the Americans swarmed the Highlanders, After killing most of their officers, Howard called for their surrender, and the outnumbered Highlanders grounded their weapons as well. Tarleton had been unable to get his infantry reserves to enter what appeared to them to be a lost battle. In frustration, Tarleton led a company of light cavalry in an attempt to at least recapture his own field cannon. Colonel Washington saw this and led a troop of Continental cavalry to engage with Tarleton. During this melee, Washington's sword broke while fighting with an enemy officer. His aides came to his defense, but Tarleton personally attempted to kill Washington, first with his sword and then by drawing a pistol to fire. The pistol missed Washington, but did hit his horse. By 8 o'clock, about an hour after the battle began, it was over. The British suffered devastating casualties. 86% of Tarleton's force was dead, wounded, or prisoners. The Americans captured the cannons, hundreds of muskets, wagons full of supplies. American casualties were relatively light for such an intense battle. 25 killed, 124 wounded. Tarleton was forced to retreat with the remnants of his legion. He managed to link up with his supply wagons, which were held far back from the battle with a guard of about 100 infantry. At that point, Tarleton ordered most of the wagons destroyed and quickly moved to return to the main army, which was still a day's ride away. Washington attempted to ride down Tarleton and his remaining forces, but he could not catch up with them in time. Morgan, still concerned that Cornwallis might bring up the rest of the British army against him, continued his retreat, getting his army and prisoners across the Broad River the following day. Two days after the battle, Morgan wrote to General Greene telling him, quote, 
the troops I had the honor to command have been so fortunate as to obtain a complete victory over a detachment from the British Army under Lieutenant Colonel Tarleton. To a friend, Morgan wrote a little more casually, quote, I have given him a devil of a whipping. A more complete victory never was obtained. The American victory at Calpins was met with great celebration in Philadelphia. Congress ordered a gold medal for General Morgan and silver medals for Colonels Washington and Howard. For the British, it meant another loss of a division that they simply could not afford to lose. Next week, British General Benedict Arnold strikes into Virginia and raids the capital of Richmond. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, Michael Gaylord, and John Celentano, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard, and 10 Crucial Days. I also appreciate the support of Jim Saracy, who joined as a standard bearer last month. Jim will soon receive his first monthly flag magnet. Thanks also to Tim Colligan, Stephen Lazarov, and James Agins for generous one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. Also want to give a shout out to Cassie when wish her a happy birthday from her husband, Eric. Before I get to my analysis of this week's episode, I have an announcement about the podcast. I've commented several times about what a struggle it's been for me to keep up with this podcast while working a full-time job. I even had to stop publishing weekly last year, instead releasing a new episode only every other week. And because of this, I've been trying to make a difficult decision about how to handle my day job and the podcast. I've finally come to the decision that I cannot really do both well. I had asked you, my listeners, to step up and see if we could get 300 supporters on Patreon so that I could do this job full time. Unfortunately, we are still well short of that goal. And this leads me to my announcements, which is, I guess, a mix of good news and bad news. I have decided to leave my full-time job and focus full-time on the podcast. 
So I guess that's the good news. This means that starting in the fall, I expect to move back to weekly episodes and will hopefully have more time to produce special episodes and other events. The bad news is that I am going to have to start including advertising on this podcast, something I've avoided for years and something that I actually started a week or two ago, so many of you have already noticed this. It is my great hope that you will continue to support this podcast on Patreon. My plan for full-time podcasting requires both Patreon donations and ad revenue. Even with both of those, money is going to be pretty tight, but I think it's worth it. I've really enjoyed producing this podcast and connecting with so many other people who share my interest in the American Revolution. Now, a few words about the commercials. You can always get a commercial-free version on Patreon or Subscribestar if you support me on one of those platforms. If you support the podcast in some other way and would like access to commercial-free episodes, please contact me. I'm sure we can work out something. I'm still working out some technical details with my platform about how the commercials will work. I, I have a pretty limited ability to control what commercials play, but if you report a particularly annoying one, I do have the ability to shut it down. If there is a particular ad or even a particular topic that you find annoying or offensive, please let me know and I will try to do something about it. I've also had some reports of ads playing in the middle of the podcast. This should not happen. The only mid-roll happens between the main show and the after show. If you hear one anywhere else in the middle of the podcast, please let me know that too. I've also been told that if I run these ads for a few months, I should be able to get more host-read ads, which means I could start to get rid of the annoying jingles after a time. I can't really promise anything on that front, but that is where I hope things are going. I know no one likes commercials. I certainly don't. But please understand the necessity of doing this. It was the only way I could continue to make this podcast, and I really want to see it through. I very much welcome your feedback, including any critical feedback. I really want to know if this annoys you or if there's anything I can do to make it better. I'm going to try to be as responsive as possible to make this thing work and still make it an acceptable product. And of course, if anyone wants to become a podcast sponsor and make significant contributions that will remove my need to run ads, I'd certainly welcome that. Now, some folks have already canceled their Patreon subscriptions as a result of my starting to run the ads. If you're one of those, I absolutely understand and I thank you for your support up until this time. But I really hope that most of you will continue to support the show as I need both contributions and ads if I want to do this full time. If you have any comments about this, you can always reach out to me. There is a contact me email on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. I put that up there for people who want to submit advertising options, but it's really just my email address. So feel free to contact me through that link if you want to email me with any comments. Anyway, that's my big announcement. I hope you find it more positive than negative. So on to this week's episode. Calpens is an amazing battle that's still studied by military history students today. It's a great example of how to use your strengths and weaknesses and your enemy's known proclivities all to your advantage. And that's exactly what General Morgan did. Morgan's victory was praised across the country, but his ongoing health problems prevented him from continuing in service. 
Shortly after the battle, he returned home to Virginia and spent most of the rest of the war recuperating. Congress's promise of a gold medal, like most of Congress's promises to the Army, went unfulfilled. Morgan would not receive his medal until nearly a decade later. The battle also impacted the military career of Bannister Tarleton. With his legion largely wiped out, Tarleton had no command. He returned to Cornwallis's camp, with most of his forces gone. Cornwallis, of course, was extremely frustrated by the loss. He needed Tarleton's legion as part of his effort to retake North Carolina. Now he had lost a valuable part of his army that he could not replace. The 26-year-old Tarleton, who had been a rising star in the army days earlier, now asked for permission to retire and seek a court-martial. Cornwallis said no. He needed Tarleton in his upcoming campaign, even without his legion. However, the blame over the loss at Cowpens would be a point of controversy between the two officers for many years. Indeed, many of the officers who fought at Cowpens condemned Tarleton's leadership at that battle. Tarleton, however, would continue to serve under Cornwallis until the capture of the entire army at Yorktown. Following his return to Britain, Tarleton wrote a history of the Southern Campaign in which he lays most of the blame for the campaign's failure on Cornwallis. There are several books devoted to the Battle of Cowpens, and you can find a list of many of these on my blog. But the one I've picked for this week's recommendation is called A Devil of a Whipping, The Battle of Cowpens by Lawrence Babbitts. It's a relatively short book at just over 150 pages, not counting notes and index, but I think it gives a good overview of the battle. Babbitts is a university professor, and some criticisms of the book are that it can be a little dry, but I thought the book did a good job and gave good coverage. The book was first published in 1998. There is also an audiobook and a Kindle version, and there's also a borrow-only copy on archive.org. So if you want to read more about the battle itself, check out A Devil of a Whipping by Lawrence Babbitts. My online recommendation is a National Park Service pamphlet called Cowpens, Downright Fighting. Famed author Thomas Fleming actually wrote this pamphlet for publication by the Park Service in 1988. It's nearly 100 pages long. It contains a great battle summary as well as pictures and maps. You can view it online at archive.org. There's other places on the internet you can find it as well. And as always, I've included links on my blog and website. My question this week asks, why did fewer Americans participate in the Revolutionary War compared to other wars we've been involved with, such as World War II? Well, I suppose it depends on who you count as participants. I'm going to throw out a bunch of numbers in this answer, but they really are rough estimates, so please don't send me your corrections. Exact numbers differ by source, and there's really no authoritative source on any of this. But as far as I can tell, the Continental Army had close to 100,000 men serve over the course of the war. That's between 3 and 4% of the total population. Now you can compare that to World War II, where roughly 11% served. But those numbers really don't tell the whole story. The Continental Army was not the only fighting force, as we saw today at the Battle of Cowpens. There were probably another 55,000 or so who served as privateers, which was essentially the naval force of the U.S. during the Revolution. You also had more than 500,000 men who served in various militias. Now, these men might only turn out for limited periods, 
but they were critical to supplementing the Continentals. If you include all of those, the privateers, the militia, and the regular army, you have a more than 20% participation rate during the Revolution. A big reason, though, for smaller armies during this era was economics. In the 18th century, more than 90% of the population had to be engaged in farming to produce enough food for the entire population. Men could not simply go off and fight full-time, or the entire nation would starve. By World War II, mechanization had made it so that only 15% of the population needed to be engaged in farming to feed the entire country. So there were plenty more men who could serve full-time in the military while still feeding everyone. The vast majority of Revolutionary War soldiers were militia. These men kept their farms going and only turned out for very short periods when the enemy was in the area. As I said, this was an economic necessity at the time. And it's also the reason why the British Army had such a small number of regulars at the time as well, compared to its overall population. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.